All right, grab your outline. So I decided last few weeks we got out either right on time or a few minutes early. So I decided to beef this up a little bit. So the caveat on that is I'm going to try to finish because we're doing the whole chapter 10. Um, but only because the first half of chapter 10 is a summary of everything we've been saying for like 12 weeks. So it's not going to be super new. It's just he's restating his arguments. Like if you ever read a paper or a book, you get to the last chapter and the first few pages are just, here's everything we said already in summary form, therefore go do this. And that's what's happening in chapter 10. And so when chapter 10 is over, technically the argument of Hebrews is over as well. He's just going to give some illustration or some further application after that. So Hebrews 11, of course, is the Hall of Faith. Chapter 12 is where we get the um, the set your eye, or just Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. And so we follow that same pattern. And then in Hebrews 13, we get this long list of, of random commandments. And so that'll be interesting to walk through all of those. But technically, we have finished the argument. The argument's over. So we're going to summarize that argument in the first half of chapter 10, and then we're going to make application because of that truth for the rest of chapter 10. So I think we can walk through this fairly quickly, but let's go ahead and dive in. Hebrews, we'll pick up in verse in 1, Hebrews 10, verse 1, and I would walk through everything we said already, but that's what he's fixing to do, so, so we don't have to completely do that, other than maybe just set the background, which is Hebrews is written to... Christian Jews being persecuted by non-Christian Jews, hoping they can get them to do what? Recant. Turn away from Christ, apostatize, blaspheme the name of Jesus. A lot of different ways we could say that, but that's the idea. Walk away from the faith. Um, He's made a really big argument, and so let's just summarize that um, here in chapter 10. So he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So what's the main statement that that verse made? The law cannot... It cannot save. Right. It cannot make you perfect. So let's... That illustration's on your paper. I just want us to think about how this works. So Hebrews is the main reason we divide our Bible in this form. We have, of course, we don't call it Old Covenant and New Covenant. We call it what? New Testament. Testament, I mean, Old Testament, New Testament. Exactly the same thing. Those are just different words for the exact same reality. We get that distinction primarily from Hebrews and the prophecy in Jeremiah that uses the expression New Covenant. So when we say Old Covenant... What do we mean? Like which covenant in particular are we talking about? Usually, so law, Moses, old covenant. Technically, it is kind of Moses. But if you read Moses, if you read the old covenant, you find more than that covenant, right? What what else do you see in there? Sacrifice. Well, sacrifice is part of part of Moses' covenant, right? Is there any covenants before Moses? Davidic? Well, Davidic is after. Abraham. Abraham. Abraham, very good. 
Oh, I did this way too. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah, you might. I gotta start over. Get a darker marker. Is this one? How can you see that? It's fine line. Oh, this is. Oh no. Please be a number marker. Washable. It's not a dry erase marker though. Hold on. <laughs> Who put that in my box? I'm going to blame that on somebody. This is empty. Okay, well. Don't tell anybody. Um, get a real dry erase marker and scribble over it. Yep, take it right off. Oh, my spit works too. Okay. There we go. But the marker doesn't smell as bad. You need to get up top. Yeah, then I gotta start all the way over. Yeah, well, you don't, really you don't have to. You can use airstrike later. I'll just get a new board later. So, let's just go sequentially. Do y'all remember the day we went over the covenants? What I what I give you is the first one. Adam. Adam. All right. Then after Adam was Abraham. Technically, before Abraham, we got another. Oh, Melchizedek. Oh. Melchizedek is a good character, but he's. Uh, Noah's right. He's, he's still after Noah, but he's also not a covenant. He's the, the priest. And after Noah, I gave you Abraham. Abraham. And then Moses. And then David. Oh, yeah. I got bigger as I went, but sure, it works. Okay. Are you going to read, read the last one? You're going to have to move up, Sue. Can you, am I standing in your side? Can you see that? Can you read it at all? Is it too far? Okay. I don't know if... Yeah. All right, so we read in that verse, how, what word described these old things? For since the yeah. law has but shadow. a shadow. shadow. All right, how do you create a shadow? So it's like a light. All right, so it's, well, you have to have a source of light. So if the Old Testament is the shadow of the good things, the good things would be the substance. Where are those good things? In the light. And it's, yeah, so it's a, it's a little bit of a hard question to answer because the good things are kind of, they're kind of now, and they're still kind of later. Have all the good things happened? No. Now, what do we, what's the big thing we're still waiting on? Second coming. Second coming, resurrection, the, the eternal kingdom. There's a lot of good that's not technically completely here, but there is a sense in which the good things have already come. Right, so if that's, let's just call that the light. And that's the source. Um, what is it making a shadow of? Okay. I heard the word Jesus. Jesus is not a bad answer. I'm going to use the cross and an up arrow. Christmas tree. Not a Christmas tree. That's an arrow. That's not like an arrow. Yeah. Up arrow. You know what the up arrow is, right? The reference to Resurrect. How do you draw an empty tomb, right? I just draw a circle with nothing in it, but I don't know. All right, so the idea is if that's a bright light, then there's kind of this shadow cast back into the Old Testament. You follow what we're saying? So does the shadow have any meaning at all back here? Yes. All right, in what sense? How did Adam get saved? 
This is the only saving substance there ever has been. Adam got saved in the shadow of the cross. Noah was saved in the shadow of the cross. Abraham and his children. Moses and the law. David and his covenant. Everyone's saved because they're in the shadow of the cross. They don't explicitly know that. But this is explicitly what Hebrews is saying. And it's exactly what Paul implies in Romans chapter 3. When he says, God passed over these former sins because he was going to demonstrate in the present time that he was just and the justifier of him who has faith when he set forth Christ as the, big fancy word, propitiation. So the propitiation of Christ is the substance, and all salvation back here in the Old Testament was a shadow of what was coming. Now if you think about that, I've made this other statement, and maybe this will help make that clear. Judaism without Jesus doesn't exist on this map, right? When does it come into existence? Well, okay, crucifixion. I would say maybe day of Pentecost. We're being too specific. New Testament era. We have a Judaism operating in a different realm. So the author of Hebrews is saying, you don't have anything. Because these are the ones, they're telling these guys to go back. And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, that doesn't make sense. You're not back there. You're down here. The shadow, you were living in the shadow. The shadow's over. We're in the daylight now. You can't go back to the shadow. And if you try to go back to the shadow, you're just in the darkness, not the shadow of the cross. You follow what he said. So, let's see. Well, no, that's not. Where did I put my Bible? I had to read my paper and it didn't sound right. Okay. <laughs> so, read that again. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So technically he made this argument in chapter 9, but he's saying what Moses offered, I'm going to put the tabernacle here. What he offered there in the tabernacle did not actually produce salvation, or cover sin. And here's the proof, verse 2. Otherwise, um, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? What's he saying? So if the sacrifice did something, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't need to do it again because the sin has been removed, but the sin has not been removed, they have to do it again. All right, but what about that consciousness? They would have no consciousness of sins. Guilt. All right, guilt. Because really he's comparing this to the New Testament and saying Jesus is doing the opposite of this. So hypothetically then we're saying... This sacrifice Jesus made does remove consciousness of sins. Now, in the English language, when we say the word consciousness, what do we mean? You're aware of it. Aware, self-aware. This word's actually been talked about way more in recent, um, the last few years, than it has in a long time because we're dealing with 
AI technology? Can a computer become conscious? What does it mean to be conscious? A lot of sci-fi is based on this notion of consciousness. We just mean that you're aware. So are we saying when Jesus forgives you of your sins, you're no longer aware that there's sin in your life? Not at all, right? In fact, if anything, the more time you spend with Jesus, uh, the more aware you become. So that's, that's not what he's talking about. But you started with the word guilt. Why'd you say guilt, Monica? Or why would anyone say guilt? Consciousness in the sense of guilt. What's a conscience? We talked about the kind. Was that last Sunday? Or last Wednesday? Okay. So that that internal awareness of right and wrong. And when you do wrong and you have a really strong conscience, what's your conscience do? Tells you about it. It condemns, convicts, accuses. We see all these different words in Scripture and in culture. The conscience is very aware that you've messed up. And it's that ding, it's that ring in your ear, wrong 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 and then after you do it there's that you did it you did it you did it you did it and it it won't let you go so that never went away in the old testament because their sacrifices couldn't do that well consequently what is that what's he implying jesus can do take it away he actually removed the guilt you can remove that guilty conscience and that's literally what he's going to say later and he did say it last last time what was it verse 14 how much more with the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to god purify our conscience so what happens all right let's keep going let's see verse three but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year so what he's arguing is that old testament system didn't actually cleanse you ultimately it was really condemning you it was just reminding you of the sin over and over and over again verse 4 because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins okay so let's let's jump way back and more than just looking at old covenant versus new covenant i gave you three covenants several weeks ago that were the the real backbone of the whole system do you remember what those were the, uh, Abraham, I said it was before before anybody did anything, actually. Technically before creation. An intertrinitarian covenant is the first covenant. What do we call that one? Covenant of redemption. Right? And we were saying that was a covenant in the Godhead. Basically, this is the plan of salvation. The lingo is in Titus. Before the foundations of the the world, God promised to who? Before the foundations of the world, who is God making a promise to himself? himself. This is an inter-Trinitarian covenant. So that's way back when. Then we said there was another covenant after that, covenant of works. And that covenant was really the Adamic covenant. This is Adam's covenant. This is the covenant that our relationship with God would be based on what? What we do. What we do. Do you see that in Adam's relationship? Does he have requirements placed on him that determine whether or not he has access to God? Yes. 
Specifically, there's several things implied, but one direct stated commandment, and what was that? Don't. Don't eat from that tree. And of course, he made a decision for all mankind. He ate from the tree and got kicked out of the garden. That's the covenant of works. There's another covenant. Both of these were planned in the first one. What was the, the third one? Okay. So when did the covenant of grace first get used? When Adam sinned and didn't die. That's where the covenant of grace began. So if we go back to our little illustration here. Here's the cross as the substance and the resurrection and the shadow coming back. The shadow comes all the way back to the first sin. And that is the moment the covenant of grace started working. So do we see the covenant of grace in the Old Testament? Yeah, we see it a lot. We just don't see it completely explained. And so historically, the way that's been described is throughout the Old Testament era, the covenant of grace was being revealed. Pieces of it. Did we see any grace in Genesis chapter 3? Yes. We even see a prophecy of final grace, Genesis 3.15. What was the prophecy there? Do you remember? That a, an offspring of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's the first gospel, proto evangelium So the gospel being revealed. Then here, or the gospel, the covenant of grace being revealed. Here, the old-timey lingo is concluded. So it was finished being revealed. The substance came. We live in an established, effective covenant of grace, i.e., covenant of grace equals new covenant. You follow the logic. What you got, Gene? So, so I guess you're saying that in the Old Testament, back to like Leviticus or whatever, when they were told to sacrifice all these animals, they thought it was for forgiveness of sins, but it was basically... God just told that's what you shall do. In a sense, yes. This is how Paul explains it. So Paul would say in Galatians that all of that was just a tutor. It pointed us to the substance that was to come. And so in the author of Hebrews just explicitly said that those sacrifices could not remove sin. That wasn't possible. Follow? I follow Admit, like, the thinking, kind of like years ago. So. <laughs> 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 finished yeah, 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 yeah. So now we know what we're going to read, not tell Exactly, exactly. Well, so the. So the, was their thinking off? Their or, thinking? Was their thinking messed up in thinking that the sacrifices, uh, the sacrifice removed their sin? Or was it the new covenant just revealed something new? Okay. The answer to that is in the next verse. Okay. <laughs> I'll wait for the next verse. So let me, let's go to the next verse, and then and then if that doesn't answer it solidly, re-ask it. All right, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said. It's really funny. Who said? He said. Christ. Does Christ said. What's he quoting here, though? The Old Testament. Old Testament. Very interesting. Psalm 40, to be precise, um, about, I don't know, like verse 10 or something. 
Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. I mean, that almost feels like a contradiction immediately. Because what's all of Leviticus about? Sacrifices. Does God want them to do sacrifices? Well, clearly, but he doesn't want them to do sacrifices. No, this this is God. No, no. So go back and look at it. It's, it's very obvious in the in the psalm quotation. But sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So the idea is it's in the Old Testament it's the psalmist saying, talking to God, saying, God, you don't want me to have sacrifices. That's not what you're really asking for. And now the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the one saying that to the Father, not the psalmist. Or, in a sense, the psalmist is really Christ. Mm-hmm. Well, just, let's read the whole quote. So, so, but a body you have prepared for me, prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So what, what he's doing with the quotation is he's setting two things in juxtaposition to one another. That statement, God doesn't desire sacrifices, but instead I've come to do the thing you actually want. And that's what Jesus has said. So he makes a change in the quotation. So sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In the original, you go back and read this verse, it's not what that, that part of the verse said. It says, an ear you have provided for me, as in, you're listening, you know. You're, but the author of Hebrews changes it to make it more explicitly a reference to Christ, meaning you have prepared for me a body in what sense? Well, incarnation, yeah. a human body. So you've prepared a body for me to come in to do the thing you really want. So as opposed to the offerings of the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, instead what he really wants is for Jesus to come and do his will. But it means his will in a specific thing. What specific will are we talking about of God for Jesus to do? It'll become super clear if you don't know now. To die, his sacrifice. So I don't desire those sacrifices. I desire this sacrifice. Now what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the Old Testament taught that. Not that he's bringing it in as a new teaching now, but that in the Old Testament, they already knew. And here's, So here's the logic. And we use this logic already, just not in this context, is we would already say something like, religion doesn't save you. It's your relationship with God. Right? Well, what do we mean? God does not want you to just follow rules. He wants you to follow Jesus. Well, will you end up following any rules if you follow Jesus? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah you will. Right? And the Old Testament, the system was the same. The sacrificial system never saved anyone, even in the Old Faith. Faith was the idea that we worship Yahweh. We follow Yahweh. The sacrifices were the religious exterior to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter was that they followed the Lord, that they trusted the Lord, that they did not commit idolatry. So, in a sense, are we saying the Old Testament sacrificial system never saved anyone? 
Oh, yeah, that's exactly what we're saying. And that's what the New Testament argues. And even the Apostle Paul, on the other side, the whole book of Galatians is designed to make this point, is that that never saved anybody in the Old Testament system. It was a teacher, it was a tutor. And so even Jesus in the um, Sermon on the Mount, when he goes through, he says, starts off in, what is it, verse 17, did not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets, I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes through all of chapter 5, showing us what he means. He quotes, the first one he quotes is, you've heard that it said you shall not murder. He says, well, the heart of that commandment is that you don't hate your brother. So the point is not that you obey the commandment. The point is that you become a particular type of person. It's not that you don't commit adultery. It's that you don't lust. It's not that you don't, you know, break your special oaths. It's that you don't need to make oaths. It's not that how far can I take my retaliation. It's, you know, it's better just to suffer. It's not that I just have to love my neighbor. It's you got to love your enemy. To all of these things... The law was never about the law. The law was always about the character of Jesus, and the sacrificial system was designed to show them how much they needed Christ. So it never really perfected them. Even in the Old Testament system, it did not accomplish that. Otherwise, we'd have to say that the entire time of the exile, guys like Daniel, Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they can't be saved because they've got no temple to make sacrifice in. But clearly they can with examples because they have the one piece that does matter, which is faith. And everything else was designed to back up that system of faith. Does that make sense at all? That's a lot of I know. I got way deep into that answer. So did we do anything under the end of the Old Covenant? Nope, nope, because we haven't gotten there yet. Never mind. Let's keep going. Did we, have we gone past verse 7 yet? The first two. The new covenant is the covenant of grace concluded. The old covenant is the covenant of grace revealed. Sorry, two blanks. The new covenant is the covenant of grace concluded. I'll look at the time. The old covenant is the covenant of grace revealed. I can totally see why you would say that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing my name. Okay. All right. Here we go. Where are we at? Verse 8? Yes. All right. So when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and in sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. So we're doing away with the burnt offerings to establish the will of God. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Do you see why he threw the word body in there? He said, you've prepared for me a body. That got sacrificed. He does desire sacrifice, just the specific one. And the specific one was Christ. That's the one that counts. That's the one that's going to make all of this work. That's why there's anything in the Old Testament, because that shadow is literally saving people back here. It is the means of salvation on both sides. Always has been. All right, so let's keep going. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, 
offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ is offered for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. That was the end. So technically, it's begun, but there's still still events that are future. So he's going to wait until that takes place, for by a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, in that case, all time is a reference to both covenants. He's perfected on both sides of the cross everyone who's being sanctified. If you're being sanctified, it's only by the blood of Christ, no matter where you fall in the timeline. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us in other words, that's like saying, God said this already in the Old Testament here. And then he goes back to the Jeremiah quote that we had back in chapter 8. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, and this is at the end of the quote, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So in that context, whose consciousness has been purged of sin? God's. You see the comparison? He starts out the chapter by saying, the Old Testament couldn't remove from consciousness your sins. But the New Covenant's so good, it's removing from God's consciousness those sins. You follow what I'm saying? The author of Hebrews is being very elaborate with his argument. So, verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Alright, fill in three blanks under the end of the Old Covenant. Jesus' sacrifice ended the need for sin to be regularly forgiven through sacrifice. There's no need for sin to be regularly forgiven through sacrifice. Second, the guilt of sin has been fully eradicated. What can I do to atone for my sins? Nothing. Because there no longer remains any offering for sin. There is no offering for sin. So you can do nothing to atone for your sin. Which is good news. Not bad news. Alright. How are we doing? Oh, we're good. Let's keep going. Verse 19. Therefore. So here's what's happened. So just thematically... Uh, grammatically, systematically, however you want to say it, the book of Hebrews has finished its argument. That's the conclusion. There's no longer a sacrifice or an offering for sin other than Jesus. So imagine that in the context. He's talking to Jews who are being tempted to go back to the old way. What's his point about the old way? That doesn't work. There's not an offering for sin back there. You've only got one offering for sin, and it was once for all time, it's Christ. So this is his argument to Jewish believers who are tempted to walk away from Christ. There's no offering back here for sin. Nothing else works. So what did those old offerings actually accomplish for every day Jew going temple to In terms of beyond teaching, you mean? Well, for years and years... 
you're taught in a basic level that that's why they did a sacrifice was to, to because they were sinned, they were being cleansed somehow. Yeah. Which isn't necessarily true, apparently. Yes. So was it just a an object lesson that God had them do over and over again, and then once a year they did it real big? Or it's a little bit more than an object lesson. But we are not saying that that blood ever actually did anything. So think about it like this, the Passover meal. Or was it just an appeasement? It's, I can't even correctly say appeasement because appeasement's a cognate to propitiation. You know, and it's not, it's not propitiation. So think about it like the Old Testament system um, with the last plague. So the 10th plague, which is where the Passover comes from, was that they had to sacrifice the Passover lamb, the Paschal lamb. They would take that blood, put it over the doorposts, and God would count that as the firstborn died, had been redeemed. And so really it was just God's accounting system. It's really a measure of obedience. Here's a specific thing I want you to do. This is your act of faith. To disobey in that but, context would be... kind of like to, a constructive mind. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, if you want to call it that. Um, it's the specific way you're obeying me in this scenario is here's what you have to go do. And so that was the... All along foreshadowing. Yeah, and and this thing, this motion I'm going through foreshadows the real thing that's coming. So, I mean, to not... So, say I went back to the Old Testament, like, well, Jesus is going to die from sins. I don't have to do this stuff. Well, that's disobedience. That's a lack of faith. God tells me, I have to do it this way. I have to do it this way. This is the... I have to sacrifice the lamb, put the blood over the doorpost. That's the specific thing God commanded me to do. So I have to, like Noah, does Noah have to get on the boat in order to be saved? Yes. <laughs> He's got to get on the boat. You know, so we don't have that object lesson. You know, we, we don't have a boat to get on. We don't have a lamb to sacrifice. Uh, we do have two things we're commanded to do. And to refuse to do either, I couldn't say, well, doing those things doesn't save you, but refusing to do them would show me you're not. One would be getting baptized. You refuse to be baptized. I have a hard time believing you're legit. Jesus told us to do this. You don't want to take the Lord's Supper? Jesus commanded us to do this. So these are two, call it object lessons, call it what you want. It's the means of grace that we are given to participate in God's work. And Moses, I mean, Moses had to sacrifice the animals. Noah had to get on the boat. You know, Abraham had to go up the mount, whether he had to sacrifice the son in the end or not, but to not go would have been disobedience. Does that make sense? I know that's a complicated topic. That's why they're arguing the years, because for the Jews, they've been doing this their whole life. You know, and you're telling us all of a sudden it didn't actually save us from our sins, and Paul is saying, yes, and the other Hebrews is saying, yeah, obviously, because you had to keep doing it. Clearly it's not working. And so... And then Paul's argument in Hebrews is it was never designed to actually do that. It was to teach us, to tutor us until Christ came. And now that Christ has come, to do it at all is the same as being pagan. So. Based on that, this first bullet here. Okay. Jesus sacrificed into the need to be regularly forgiven. Would be better to say his sacrifice needs to be in the need to be reminded of sin? 
forgiven of sin, I think you're saying, the sacrifice. I'm right. saying Jesus' sacrifice ended our need to be regularly given. Yeah, yeah but it's, his sacrifice was ended the need to be sin forgiven through sacrifice, the blood goats and then fevers. Or, or anything, you know, any habitual hoop you jump through to gain forgiveness. But it kind of makes you think that, that those sacrifices were forgiving you of sin at one point. I see what you're saying. I'm yeah. not trying to imply that. That they were they were forgiving sin. Yes. <laughs> I see what you're saying. That is not my intended implication of the way I worded that. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes. Yes. And I would say that the blood connected to remission is a shadow, where this is the substance, and that shadow looks like an animal getting sacrificed back here. Instead of Adam being killed. Instead of Adam, yes, being killed. (laughs) Yes, yes. Okay. I got five minutes. I don't know if we'll get through all this or not. We'll just see how far we go. Does that work for y'all? Six minutes, technically. Okay. Therefore, so this is his conclusion. This is the, the application. The sermon's over. Here's what you need to go do with this information. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Now, what's that a reference to? Holy of Holies. <laughs> since we have confidence to go into the Holy of Holies. So did you feel like you had confidence to do that up to this point? <laughs> and we don't either, really, because we recognize our sins. So well. But he's argued that that's how good the blood of Christ is. Because what happened to the veil? It's torn. I can walk right up into the Holy of Holies with what attitude? Confidence. Walk in there boldly. <sighs> it's scary to think about, right? But that's what it's saying. Because we have that confidence that we can enter by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened through the curtain that is through his flesh, since we have a great high priest over the throne of God, we're going to get three let us. This is the first one. Let us draw near. Draw near to what? To God's presence. That's the whole thing. They had all these obstacles between them and Christ, between them and God. In the Old Testament, what we're explicitly saying is there are no obstacles. You have bold, confident access to God, so draw near with a true heart and full assurance. So the blank there, let us draw near in full assurance for two reasons. Well, confidence and assurance are close. You know, that's similar words. I've only got four. So, all right. So, but there's two reasons. One, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So, because our hearts are sprinkled clean, and then second, because our bodies 
are washed with pure water. Now, technically, that's a reference to baptism, but really it's a reference to what baptism is a reference to. Does that make sense? Like, so baptism is a symbol. So the symbol is baptism. What's baptism symbolic of? New birth from what to what? Death to life from... It's the symbol of our repentance, right? So we've had not just our hearts sprinkled clean, but now the flesh itself is being cleaned, walking in new life. So we're looking at not just the source of sin, but the outward expression of sin are both changing because of the blood of Christ. So let's draw near in assurance because that's happening. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So let us hold fast our confession. In that sense, what does the word confession mean? See, in English, we almost exclusively use this word now to refer to admitting sin. And that's not what the word means here. And like, so all of our ancient doctrinal statements are called what? Confessions. This is the truth we proclaim, that we confess. Literally, the word confess is like the word to preach, to declare. So let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Why? Why can we hold that fast? For he who promised is faithful. Our mediator is a faithful mediator. And then number three, let us consider, it's one of my favorite verses, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Let us consider how to stir up one another. All right, that word stir up, only positive usage of that Greek word in the New Testament. This is the word for tick off. It is. I mean, we, it's not how they said it in Greek, so but that's what we say in English. Are you provoke someone is how this gets translated every other time. So if somebody, so when Jesus went into the temple and they were doing all those shady, underhanded dealings, bringing marketplace, Jesus was stirred up, provoked. That ticked him off, made him frustrated. When I was a kid and I would poke my sister, that was provoking, right? And how long do you provoke? Or sorry, when you're when you're an eight-year-old poking your four-year-old daughter, when do you quit? When they smack you. When you get a response, right? It's like this ain't stopping until something happens. And then once they learn that, they think, okay, well, I'll just I'm gonna see how long my patience is. And I guarantee you. You know who has less patience in that scenario every time? The one being poked. The one being poked has less patience. This is how it works. All right, but in... <laughs> probably true. All right, in this scenario, though, who's poking who? We're poking each other. We're poking each other. But rather than this being a negative term, let's provoke them to anger. You're provoking them to what? Love. To love and good deeds. So I guess so, we would say motivate. To motivate to be a catalyst. There we go. Fancy. Chemical term. Yeah. yeah. That's the idea, though. We want to spur, you know, like on a boot, spur them on to love and good deeds. How? Let's see how the next verse is worded. All right? Not neglecting to meet together as it is the habit of some. What's that a reference to? Church attendance. This is church attendance. And different form. Obviously, small group would count, you know, but this is, uh, don't neglect that. 
So why is it, or sorry, we stir up one another by gathering as the body. By gathering as the body, because um, all the more as you see the day is drawing near, for if we go on sinning deliberately after the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Think about that. What's In the context of Hebrews, what's that say? If you walk away from Jesus, what are your other options? There aren't other options. You can't do that. All you have is Jesus. So, you better go to church. That's the argument. You see that? You better go to church, because if you... You don't go to church. What else is there that can save you? That's the logic he just used, though. What, what's what's he implying here? Because we're not saying church attendance saves you. I don't think that's what the Hebrews is intending. Yes. What are they being persecuted specifically to do? Go back to Judaism. Walk away from Christ. Which in real life means walk away from what? Salvation. The body. I mean, it is salvation, but literally, spherically, in the real world, walking away from Jesus looks like walking away from the church. So they're trying to like break up a faction of rebellion, basically. Yeah, that's how they saw it. They saw the church as a group. There's this concept of individual believers on an individual relationship with God doesn't exist in their world. They don't have a category for that. There's just the church. So to walk away from the church meant to walk away from Jesus. So what he's saying here, the way he's using his logic, is uh, we better stir each, other, stir each other up to good works and keep fellowshipping together because if we don't do that, there's no other way we can be saved. <laughs> he's just making a logical jump. He's not saying church attendance saves, but he's assuming... That your fellowship in the body is where you know Jesus. Because none of us is as strong as all of us. Yeah. Well, and it's even more than pragmatics, though. Because think about their scenario. One of the things they could do is just quit gathering right now. They're experiencing persecution. Just quit gathering. Let this die down. We'll go gather in secret. He's explicitly warning against that. Because then there's no sacrifice for sins that can save you. He just doesn't have a category where they're being a Jesus, you and Jesus, without you and Jesus' church. They're the same for him. No distinction. Okay, let's stop there. There's a lot of judgment and punishment that's interesting in there. I don't want to fly through that. So, Because we need... So let us consider how to stir up one another by gathering as the body of Christ because we need to work together to keep the faith. Yeah, so we'll finish the rest next week as long as I remember to finish the rest next week. Yeah, just remind me before when we start. Because if I prepared only chapter 11 and forgot that I didn't finish chapter 10, like that other scenario, we'll be in trouble. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some pretty severe judgment in there. It's a fearful things to fall into the hands of the living God. So we want to cover that one for sure. Okay, I'm going to pray for us. We're a few minutes late. Y'all forgive me. I'll take it from last week. So, uh...
Let's pray. God, we thank you for tonight. We pray that you bless our study of your word. Help us to make sense of Hebrews and the, the complicated nature of the relationship between the Old and New Testament. God, I pray that you would help us to understand it and apply it and walk in it with confidence because of the blood of Christ once for all shed for us so that we can be perfected by his blood alone. We thank you for the cross and the resurrection and the hope that it gives us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.